Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. So here's the deal. I think most of us are stuck. We really want to read the Bible. We want to understand it, absorb it, apply it. Yet for most of us, not only do we deal with the constant pressure of time, but all these new avenues of content, from Netflix to social media to smartphones to podcasts. Yes, I see the irony of podcasts. They all pull our attention, they fill our minds, and they distract us from one of the true, deep-felt curiosities to encounter God in His Word. So last episode, I started with why. Why should we return to the Bible? If you missed it, you might want to check it out as it's a great setup to this episode. Yet today, I want to explore the how. How do we actually do it? How does sitting down to study the Bible become not a burden, but a joy? Is that even possible? How do we restart our Bible study? My goal is that at the end of this episode, you would walk away with four tangible steps to return to the Word and encounter God again. So let's dive in. So, if we're going to talk about Bible study, we need to talk about habits. Habits are those daily rhythms that we never seem to notice when they're forming. But before we know it, our habits have dug these deep grooves in our minds and bodies. They become the patterns of our behavior that we sort of fall into. When we're tired, bored, angry, sad, or lonely, our bodies instinctively reach for those deep grooves that they know how to fill. Habits become the patterns that mark the very identities of our lives. Whenever we start talking about habits, it's easy to point out food and exercise. So here's the thing. All of us are dieting right now. The question is whether or not we're noticing what we're dieting when we're eating. All of us are exercising right now, even if it's just swinging your feet out of bed in the morning. The question is if we feel intentional and in control of the exercise we are performing. Now, I went years dieting and exercising on instinct. I felt like I should exercise sometimes, and so I would try to, and sometimes I would, and sometimes I wouldn't. I know I should eat well, but I never really got clear on what I was supposed to be eating, and whether eating well meant skipping dessert, or choosing an apple over a bag of chips, or something else. I know this is how most of us live when it comes to the Bible. We want to read it and pray. We want to think about it sometimes. We even try it out. We sort of feel our way through it, but we never get clear what good Bible reading looks like. And we never really know, even when we're doing it, if it's working or not. A couple years ago, a friend of mine who was really into diet and exercise broke down for me the basics of how calories worked, what different kinds of food intake did to muscle build up and fat stored in the body. And then he gave me a few tips on how he'd found really simple, helpful metrics to mark his fitness, to mark his weight, to mark his food intake. And it changed everything for me. Suddenly, diet and exercise no longer felt mysterious. They felt attainable. I had a coach. I had a guide. And when we talk about it, I no longer felt overwhelmed, even when I didn't always hit my goals or marks. I understood how the habit of my eating and exercise worked and affected my body. That's what I want to offer you here today. There will be more that we'll need to talk about, and inevitably some things I don't get to cover. 
But I think with these four basic steps and some practical advice on how to restart your Bible study, you could actually leave behind that constant nagging pressure or worry that you should be reading your Bible more. And instead, you can begin to build the muscle of your spiritual life as you encounter God regularly through his word. There was a book that came out recently by a man named James Clear called Atomic Habits, An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Habits. You've probably seen this book on the bestseller shelf if you've gone into a bookstore or flicked through Amazon. It's done super well. And that's because at our core, we all want to feel agency over our habits. Surprisingly, behavioral psychology, which is the main field James Clear borrows from, has developed some very straightforward and consistent insights on how people change their behaviors for the better and break bad ones over time. Now, just a quick note before I dive into the four simple steps that James Clear outlines in his book, Atomic Habits. My wife, who is a therapist, would be the first to tell you that behavioral psychology has a lot of credibility and weight behind it when it comes to psychological studies. And this is a good thing. Over the past 60 years, following the work of B.F. Skinner and his famous experiments that taught a dog to salivate at the sound of a bell, psychologists have found there is an immense amount of insight and control we can have in the discipline of training our behaviors. The real advocates and prophets from their studies, however, have mostly played out in the form of countless self-help books you've seen on the shelves, basically repeating the same mantra. With these behavioral adjustments, you can change your life. If you've read any of these books, you've likely been impressed, perhaps even inspired, and many, including myself, with my friend who gave me exercise and dieting advice, have benefited from making behavioral adjustments based on their insights. However, I say all of this because the success of behavioral psychology can sometimes get to the discipline's head. And you can get this sense, you know, if I just mastered behavioralism, then I could finally become the perfected version of myself. Sometimes, if you read Atomic Habits, you start to feel, you know, with enough self-control, I could really become anyone I wanted to be. Yet for all the insight behavioralism has given in how to control emotions and behaviors and habits, the study always fails to answer the question, why? Why should I change my behavior? Why should I engage one behavior over another? Who is it that I should become? And why have I struggled to be that person all along? I am deeply passionate about the why, and our last episode tried to give you a solid bearing. The why really matters, and habits, which sometimes can be changed with enough discipline and self-control, will never be enough to tell you who you're supposed to be. I say all of that just to be clear, because I'm not trying to give you a quick fix or a cheap sell. Instead, I do think James Clear, Atomic Habits, and Behavioral Psychology give us some great starting points to consider how to reset a habit. And with lots of important conversations around the why, we might even find ourselves encountering God and slowly, ever so slowly, becoming more and more the sanctified and transformed people God has called us to be. So let's dive in here to what James Clear is saying in Atomic Habits and look at how it gives us four steps to restart our Bible study. His first principle is this. When it comes to a habit, make it obvious. There was a study in 2001 by British researchers on exercise and motivation. They had 248 people split into three groups. The first group, the control group, were simply asked to track how often they exercised over the next two weeks. The second group was the motivation group. They were asked not only to track their workouts, but also to read some material on the benefits of exercise. 
The researchers also explained to this group how exercise could reduce the risk of coronary heart disease and improve health benefits. Finally, there was the third group. This group received the same motivational prep talk as the second group, but they were additionally asked to formulate a plan for when and where they would exercise over the following week. Specifically, the third group completed the following sentence. During the next week, I will partake in at least 20 minutes of vigorous exercise on, and there's a blank for the day, at, a blank for the time, in, a blank for the place. So what did the study find? Well, unsurprisingly, in the first group, 35% of people exercised at least once per week. That wasn't too bad. But in the second group, the motivation group, there was an ever so small bump up to 38% from 35%. However, the third group saw 91% of the group exercise at least once a week. The sentence the group filled out was described as an implementation intention. In addition to this statement, studies have shown that when a cue is there corresponding to the intention to trigger the behavior, that is, you associate a time or a place or a day with the behavior you want to do, then people are far more likely to engage the activity. So when it comes to personal Bible study, I think there's a lot of overlap. We are motivated on Sunday or perhaps in a small group to study the Bible, but we rarely articulate the implementation intention. So the first question for you that I would encourage you to write down even now as you listen is in the following week, what would you state? During the next week, I will partake in blank amount of time, reflecting on and praying about blank book of the Bible, on blank day, at blank time, in blank place. So your implementation question for restarting your Bible study would be during the next week, how much time will you reflect and pray on blank book of the Bible? And then you state the day, the time, and the place that you'll do it. This is where we start. However, you've probably gotten to this step before. So James Clear has this other technique as part of make it obvious that he calls habit stacking. And the idea is simply this. All of us have morning and evening rhythms. Yours probably look different to mine. Maybe it's showering, brushing your teeth, doing makeup, making a cup of coffee, eating a bowl of cereal, drinking a cup of water before bed. Whatever it is, you have habits you're already doing. And so one of the easiest ways to cue yourself to start a new habit is to connect a habit you already do to the new habit you want to start. So here's my breakthrough. I love making coffee in the morning. A couple of years ago, I got hooked on making coffee with the Chemex. I know, I know, I used to do it with Keurig machines because it was simple and fast, but now I really enjoy that slow five-minute process where you get all the smells, you get the paper out, you grind your fresh beans, and the coffee tastes incredible. One of the easiest ways for me to cue myself and stack a habit is to use my make my coffee in the morning routine as the trigger for sit down for 20 minutes to reflect pray, and read a passage of Job. Now, I want to be really clear here. I think studying the Bible every day is great, but I think encounter with God through the Bible is far more important than rushed or route study. So as you contemplate restarting your Bible study, maybe you only pick one day a week. You stack some habits with it. You brush your teeth, you get dressed, you get your coffee, and then you do 30 minutes with the Bible in your favorite chair. Rather than trying to hold up to this intense and unrealistic pressure that every morning at 7.15, you will get 45 whole minutes in with your Bible study. Maybe instead, you pick one day and you build your time with God from there. The point is to be creative and personal, but to understand you're motivated by an implementation intention. You do need to state when, where, and how you will be cued 
to do your Bible study. And you likely already have other habits you can stack to help cue your attention to your restarted habit of engaging God's Word. So the second principle James Clear offers in Atomic Habit is to make it attractive. There's this famous study of dopamine done on rats in 1954, where James Old and Peter Milner implemented electrodes in the brains of rats that blocked the release of dopamine. To their surprise, and somewhat cruelly, the rats lost all will to live. They didn't desire to eat, they didn't desire to drink, they didn't crave anything, and they died within several days from thirst. So other researchers reversed this process and did experiments where they flooded the brain with dopamine. One study on mice discovered that if they were given a hit of dopamine when they poked their nose in a box, within minutes the mice developed a craving so strong they began poking their nose into the box 800 times per hour, which, it's worth pointing out, is not so different from a human who for the average slot machine player will spin the wheel 600 times per hour. The point is we are dopamine-driven creatures. Our culture is built on the industry of desire and creating and drawing our cravings in. So James Clear's response to our dopamine need when it comes to habits is a technique he calls temptation bundling. The idea behind temptation bundling is that you take something you struggle to do, like working out, and you connect it to several other things that you enjoy doing, like watching a show on Netflix through your iPad as you cycle, or listening to your favorite podcast while you jog. James Clear mentions the example of ABC, who in 2014 to 2015 attempted to market their Thursday night television programming with temptation bundling. They gathered the three shows created by Shonda Rhimes, Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, and How to Get Away with Murder. Yet here was the real genius of their campaign. ABC called it TGIT, Thank God It's Thursday, and encourage viewers to enhance their TGIT with popcorn and a glass of red wine. The brilliance of this was that ABC built an association between what their viewers already wanted to do, relax on the couch, make popcorn, and drink red wine, with something ABC needed them to do, which was view their shows. Now I realize this almost feels unhelpful, to compare studying the Bible with a night spent watching Shonda Rhimes and drinking red wine. Yet the insight of this principle came from me when I was studying Old Testament Levitical practices of worship. And it's interesting, when you sit with the instructions of Leviticus and get into how temple worship would have taken place, you begin to realize that far from burdensome rituals, the Israelites would have likely been eagerly anticipating the chance to offer their sacrifices. First, there was the temple, the building of stunning beauty. Normally, your day was spent in the fields or the mundane color of earth and bricks. Yet when you entered God's presence, you found yourself swept into the majesty of gold, artistic renderings engraved on the walls. One commentator I read said it would have been like entering Eden to enter into the inner chambers of the temple. Even more, the sacrifice itself would have smelled incredible and would culminate in you getting to share a meal with a Levitical priest. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. It's almost like God was trying to make worship attractive for his people. So I'm not going to try to stretch this too far. What I do think is practical and helpful is to consider the ways you might associate your time in the Bible with your other favorite rituals. For years, I did prayer in an empty closet that was horribly uncomfortable. More power to me. Yet I've found that the deepest and most consistent engagement I've had in the scriptures is when I've had a favorite chair, preferably with the best light, a beautiful Bible, a beautiful journal that I want to write in, a candle that fills the space with smells, and a really good cup of coffee that I can't drink unless I get up in the morning to go sit down in my favorite chair. The Puritans would say that such attractive edifices distract your heart from God. And if you find that to be the case, again, 
more power to you. But the Anglicans get that God often uses your senses to draw us to him. That beauty of creation, the smell of the incense, the feel of the Bible in your hands as you pray. So for you, what would it take to make your personal Bible study your favorite 20 minutes of your day or your favorite hour of your week? What would draw you in to God's presence and make it attractive when you spend time in God's word? Okay, so that's two down. The third principle James Clear is going to offer us is make it easy. There's this story of a photography professor who decided to try and experiment with his photography class. On the left side of the room, he assigned the quantity group. They would be graded solely on the amount of work they produce. On the final day of class, he would tally up the numbers of photos submitted by each student. 100 photos would rate an A, 90 photos a B, 80 photos a C, and so on. Meanwhile, everyone on the right side of the room would be in the quality group. They would be graded only on the excellence of their work. They would need to produce one photo during the semester, but to get an A, it had to be a breathtaking and nearly flawless image. At the end of the term, this professor was surprised to find that all the best photos were produced by the quantity group. During the semester, these students were busy taking photos, experimenting with composition and lighting, and testing out various methods in the darkroom, learning from their mistakes. In the process of creating hundreds of photos, they honed their skills. Meanwhile, the quality group sat around speculating about perfection, image, lighting, but in the end, rarely took any photos because of their fear that it wouldn't be the one quality, flawless photo. The point, of course, is well taken. When it comes to our habits, we're often paralyzed by perfection, when motion is actually what's needed most. This principle has been well attested now by neuroscience research that found repetitive behaviors, even quite short and small, begin forming connections between neurons in our brain. With each repetition, cell-to-cell -cell signaling improves and the connections tighten, making the action easier to access. Donald Hebb, a neuroscientist from the 1940s, formulated this insight into a law now known as Hebb's Law. Neurons that fire together, wire together. So one of the main pushes James Clear is going to make in Atomic Habit, the way we get a habit off the ground is to make it easy and to do it frequently. He talks about reducing friction when it comes to the action, and even accepting a shortening at the start. Maybe you want to exercise for an hour each day, but it would be better to do five minutes of walking where you just set out your workout clothes every night, do your walk every morning, and then go to the gym once an hour for a week. When it comes to studying the Bible, I think the main challenge most of us face is honestly just the simple friction that we don't have our Bible set out, we don't have our chair chosen, we don't have a journal ready, and we don't have a book of a Bible chosen to enter into. So here in our third step, make it easy. You're starting to see how your Bible study could come together with the first step, make it obvious, and the second step, make it attractive. Maybe you don't have 20 minutes every day. You could start with five, sitting down with a cup of coffee and praying over one verse. Maybe you feel overwhelmed by the commitment to study your Bible every day. What if you picked a book like Job and committed to going through one study emphasizing encounter with God? And every time you see your Bible sitting next to your chair, you set an intention to sit down and work through one study at a time, pray, and then go on with your day. This, of course, is not to say there is anything easy about entering the presence of God. Yet there is often unnecessary friction that we've built up that's holding us back. And when it comes to restarting our quiet time, it's better to just take 100 photos than to search for the perfect one. So this is going to lead us to our fourth and final step. Make it satisfying. 
James Clear tells the story of a Pakistan problem in the late 1990s with the sanitation condition of their streets. When a healthcare worker by the name of Stephen Luby visited Karachi, one of the hubs of Pakistan and home to over 9 million people, he was struck by how many illnesses and diseases people were struggling with in the densely populated neighborhoods that could be avoided by the simple practice of washing their hands regularly. Yet as Luby investigated further, he was surprised to find that the benefits of handwashing were actually well known to the poor of Karachi. The problem was people just weren't doing it. When I think about habits, I find this so often to be true. Most of the time, it's not that I don't know what is good for me. I know eating an apple is better than a bag of chips. I know drinking water is better than a glass of wine with dinner. And I know that asking to have that hard conversation with my boss will be better than if I avoid it. The problem is that I'm a creature of comfort that gravitates towards the path of least resistance. And when I choose to do those things, it's because I don't really see the deep, real satisfaction that would come from choosing a different way. As Luby's team questioned the people of Karachi, most acknowledged handwashing was important, yet many acknowledged that they often forgot to wash their hands before prepping food or simply ran their hands under hot water and didn't use soap. As Luby worked on this problem, he stumbled across a brilliant solution. His team reached out to the large corporation Procter & Gamble and talked about a humanitarian project in which they would design a particularly nice-smelling and extra-bubbly soap that they could distribute to various neighborhoods for study. It was called Safeguard, and almost immediately those partaking in Luby's study found that they really enjoyed using this particular soap. Instantly, handwashing shifted from a duty to a privilege, even one that felt somewhat luxurious. Their study was finding that disease dropped significantly in neighborhoods that participated with the extra smelly, extra bubbly soap. Even six years after the study, any neighborhood given Procter & Gamble soap reported lower rates of infectious diseases, all because of a more satisfying hand-washing experience. The truth of the matter is we create habits around the practices that satisfy us. That doesn't mean habits always begin enjoyably. As any would attest, eating healthy, working out, Budgeting your checkbook all at first seem unenjoyable, but anyone who thrives in those fields of life will tell you that they now enjoy doing them. It's become satisfying to them, and likely if you were to press them more, they would even point to the early days when something shifted in the way they practiced that habit, where instead of a duty, it became a delight. As I've said before on this podcast, I don't think God or the Bible are the problem when it comes to our Bible study but I do think we've often missed chances in the church to connect the practice of our Bible study with the satisfying pleasure of a life lived before God. We've often attempted to open this ancient book at random in cold, damp corners of our houses and then rigidly clamp our eyes closed, hoping to connect to God in prayer. I'm just not sure it has to be done that way. And in fact, you could be hindering your engagement with God by continuing to attempt a Bible study that doesn't connect to that deeper longing you have for satisfaction. What would it look like if your Bible study actually was satisfying? What would it take? I think that's an interesting question to ponder in your own heart. You won't study the Bible if it isn't satisfying. Yet I don't think it is a problem with God or even with the text itself. I know for me, as I've pondered that very question, I want to be immersed in the Bible. That's why we try to make our companion Bible studies beautiful and intentionally designed. I know that I need help understanding a passage. That's why we have these sections for you to read through that guide you into the biblical world. I know I often need help on how to pray about what I've just engaged. 
And I know I need the reminder to slow down and listen when God's word has been read. What if you could actually encounter God when you open up your Bible? Not in some magical formula way or experiential high, but what if you had a consistent practice, a book you were studying, and a guide to prompt you? What if you could sit in a chair you love with a cup of coffee in your hand, art before you, and you could breathe deep and root yourself in the God who made you and loves you and is speaking to you? That would transform any Bible study into something that I look forward to. That would truly make time spent with my Bible not just satisfying, but transformative of who I am and how I live. So when all four of these steps come together, What could it look like for you when it comes to restarting your Bible study? First, you make it obvious. You probably need to get a tangible Bible. Pick a tangible space that you set aside as sacred. And pick a study that draws you into the Word of God. This means that you're going to need to find your Bible buried on your bookshelf. You're going to need to set a day and time that you want to sit in a particular chair. And you're going to need to have some idea in your mind of what you're going to do when you begin this obvious study of God's Word, which leads to our second step. Make it easy. Set your Bible out in plain sight. Have a game plan with the time you're going to begin, how you'll use the timer on your phone, where you'll set your phone to the side when you begin, and how you plan to move through your time in a way that doesn't overwhelm you or give you some crazy goal to accomplish but in a simple, still way, lets your life touch the words of the text. That leads to our third step. Make it attractive. What are the small, easy adjustments that draw you towards your time in the Bible? Is it a warm blanket or a cup of tea? Is it a beautiful space or a beautiful study? Is it going for a walk, listening to a podcast while you scroll the text on your phone? Is it going to Starbucks and sitting for 15 minutes in quiet before you begin your day at work? How much fun can you have in making your Bible study attractive? Which leads to our fourth step. Make it satisfying. Here's where the deep needs of your life for God connect to the book that he has already given us. How do you bring depth and satisfaction to your Bible study? What would be required for your Bible study to satisfy your soul? Do you need others to do it with you? Do you need a book or a question answered? Do you need stillness and slowness in prayer? Do you need to hear from God? You will not study the Bible if it does not satisfy you. So how can you lean in to the satisfaction God wants to offer you by encountering you in his word? This episode has been about the practical steps it takes to restart your Bible study. Step one, make it obvious. Step two, make it easy. Step three, make it attractive. And step four, make it satisfying. But underneath these four steps, there is an invitation. What if what you've been missing was a Bible study you enjoyed spending time with? That ultimately is my encouragement for you as a pastor. Stop trying to white-knuckle your Bible study. It won't work. Instead, find small, simple steps to create space for a Bible study you enjoy. If it is obvious, easy, and attractive, it will be satisfying. Because when you do it, you will enter in to the strange new world of the Bible. God will show up and God will be speaking, and that will change your life. But first, may we move past these obstacles that have been tripping us up so that we may return to the Word and encounter God again. Until next time, this has been John Perrine, Grace and Peace.